I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our podcast. You can find us at Open Mind TV and support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome the founder of the Survivor Corps, a grassroots movement of COVID-19 survivors, Diana Barrent. Diana, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me on and uh, really focusing a spotlight on such an important issue right now. Of course. Let me ask you to begin with, as the founder and leader of this grassroots movement, what are you most urgently focused on right now? Is it care for COVID patient long haulers or is it the vaccinations or all of the above? I mean, look, I think that right now you need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. So um, there, we have a sort of multi-platformed approach. There are a number of things that we're working on. Um, vaccines, in terms of how they apply to people who have had COVID is where we are involved. Um, we are very pro, we are very pro vaccine. We are very pro vaccine for people who have had COVID before. Um, and we have done a lot of, you know, several webinars exploring that, um, because people who've had COVID are in a unique position, uh, vis-a-vis the, the vaccine. But, um, you know, there are, there are loads of folks who are focused on that and I leave that to them. I don't think that there are enough people focused on what I consider to be the shadow pandemic. Um, these people who get COVID and do not recover. And that is, that is what I am most focused on right now because that will be with us and will be haunting us for many, many years long after the virus is perfectly contained. Would you count yourself among the people who are still suffering? Um, no, I wouldn't. Um, you know, I, I, do I still have lingering issues? Yes. I was diagnosed with COVID onset glaucoma at the end of August. Um, I spent four days in the hospital last week with a mysterious abscess in my face, um, that in my jaw muscle that looked like no other abscess any of the doctors had ever seen, whether or not that's COVID related is still to be determined. So I think that it's um, a little bit of a false dichotomy uh, to determine who really is in that category and who isn't. I am by no means suffering the way many people are. Um, When we're talking about long-term COVID, we're talking about people in their 20s and 30s who were marathon runners a year ago or fitness trainers and are now literally uh, in in wheelchairs and on feeding tubes. So by that standard, I'm extraordinarily lucky, but um, I hesitate yet to really put a sharp um, binary definition on who is and who isn't a long hauler because um, it's COVID can really, it does so much damage to your body. It can act like a ticking time bomb and you just don't know when it's going to go off. I think you certainly meet the description of someone who, based on what you've just articulated, has ongoing medical issues. Like you said, everyone is on a scale or spectrum in terms of their suffering, but there's no doubt tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, likely millions. Millions, millions, without um, a doubt. Millions, millions if you use the most conservative 
estimates. If you use the official numbers given by the U.S. government, and those are only including reported infections um, and the CDC's estimate over this was in July, and we're already in the millions of people suffering from long-term COVID many at the prime of their lives. Um, and so that's something also to think about. This is really, you get people who got COVID in the spring are still unable to get back to work. And, you know, the the economic impact of this is not, you know, po- both to the individual and to the country is not something to be underestimated either. Let's talk about reparations, compensation for injury, we know that the government very, very badly screwed up the pandemic response. The federal government and most, if not all, 50 states. Um, has the Corps taken a position yet on how we ought to provide care for and necessary benefits for survivors like yourself? I wouldn't. I, I I would stay away from the word reparations, but absolutely, we are one hundred percent dedicated to making sure that we do not leave a single survivor behind. Um, look, at the end of the day, surviving COVID does not mean recovering from COVID, and we owe it to every single individual, whether mistakes were made or not, because everybody deserves health care. Um, they, we deserve to provide, you know, those people deserve long-term COVID care centers that focus on the whole body that are affordable, that uh, do not require insurance, that are not dependent on whether you were lucky enough to secure a PCR test when they were rare and often inaccurate back in the spring. And, you know, not everybody produces antibodies. So we we now have a T-cell test from Adaptive Biotechnologies that actually was announced this morning, which will lend a bit more information to figuring out who had COVID. But we owe these people science. We owe them money right now in terms of research. We need um we need a gold standard for long-term COVID care centers. Um, we need a we we need a name. You know, there's no name for this right now. Um, there are still debates being had. I asked Dr. Fauci about this at the end of you know October 30th. We're now at the end of February. It's very hard to even find. You know, if you go to look up research on long-term COVID, it will come up by a thousand different names, which makes doing research extremely difficult. Um, not to mention the fact that if you don't have a billing code, imagine the confusion that comes up with people who are literally going into personal bankruptcy, paying for doctor's appointments that are leading them down rabbit holes. You question the word reparation, and I understand the historical significance and context there. But we are dealing with likely the most serious human catastrophe, humanitarian disaster in the history of the United States. And that includes, by comparison, the Civil War World War II, likely the 1918 Great Influenza. You know, from a legal standpoint, if you're looking for reparations, you first, you know, if there are 
crimes that have been crimes against humanity that have been made, then those charges should be made. Well, Lori Garrett, who who like Eric Fagelding and others among the scientists and science journalists who were reporting on this from the outset, December, January, in the beginning months, there was a constituency of folks making people aware. And Lori Garrett calls the Trump administration's response pandemicide. So I don't know if the core would sympathize with that position, but it's an open question. And I don't disagree with Lori Garrett's characterization of what the government did to us to deny airborne transmission, to deny states on the basis of partisanship, vital protective equipment, and then to allocate vaccination in the waning months of the Trump administration by who is the Republican governor of Florida or who is the Democratic governor of New York. So when you talk about crimes against humanity or political crimes or constitutional crimes, I don't, I myself put it in that category. I understand where you're going, and I am as big of, of a fan of Lori Garrett's as um, anyone else, and was you know read her books many many years ago, thinking of them more as science fiction than um, prophecy. But um, there's a reason why she is called a, the, the Cassandra of our time. Um, you know, look, I, I agree with you on a personal level on a lot of this, but as an organization, we are we are a forward-looking, solution-based, um, you know, mobilization. We are movement. Um, now is not the moment to be looking back and laying blame. As far as I'm concerned, we are still in the middle of a raging fire, and it's more important first to get the um, the victims out of the burning building before trying to find the arsonist. Fair enough. But you are looking forward in wanting to demand not just adequate health care for existing survivors, but to ensure that there be a dedicated fund for victims, families, whether that's orphans who've lost their parents or long haul survivors of which there are millions you're saying. So is there a template you're using? Uh, one that comes to mind instantly is the victims' compensation and survivor benefits for 9/11. Right, which 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 ended up which ended up being extremely problematic. Which is one of the reasons why um, I put a lot of consideration into things like what this should be called, um, because when first we need to have a. A uniformly subscribed to definition of what long-term COVID is um, before we can get to that. You know, we, we have much more, but, but yes, um, I, I spend a lot of time looking at, at history and looking to see what has worked and mostly what has not worked. And if this is a the nadir of our, you know, <laughs> of our society, um, then perhaps we can look forward to a renaissance of kinds and we can build back a healthcare system that is better and stronger and rests on pillars of equity and transparency where patients and scientists can work together as partners, as collaborators, 
you know, in collaboration, you know, we have truly redefined citizen science as citizen scientist collaboration. And I see that being as a benefit that will outlast COVID. And toward that same end, COVID has really made us look at our healthcare system in a whole new light. I mean, my son is 12 years old. He was 11 a year ago, as this happens. And um, he had COVID, you know, three weeks sinus infection, fatigue, didn't miss a day of school because we didn't know it was COVID at the time. He later showed up with antibodies. We all got COVID afterwards. Um, but I never would have called him a long hauler kid by any stretch of the imagination or, you know, nothing to speak of, maybe some stomach aches here and there, but who knows whether that's COVID related or not. Um, and then in the beginning, first week of November, he was sitting on the couch in the basement watching TV because he's you know 12. And um, one of his front adult teeth fell out spontaneously with no blood loss. And I rushed him to the oral surgeon who had never seen anything like it, said that that it should have looked like a murder scene and there hadn't been even a drop of blood. And I immediately went on to Survivor Corps and started crowdsourcing and, you know, because I didn't know whether this was COVID related or just a freak thing because freak things also happen. And we have to be careful about not sweeping everything under, you know, this umbrella term. Um, it, it needs to be scientifically defined. And, um, you know, what ended up happening was we found that dental issues are a huge part of long-term COVID. And we then did a poll of a couple thousand people and found that 28% of them had new and unusual dental issues uh, since having COVID. And of those, half of those 28, so 14% of the, of all of the people who are suffering from long-term COVID had had teeth break, crumble, or fall out spontaneously. Um, and now, I mean, the New York Times science section wrote up his case and there is, you know, presumptive vascular damage in his jaw, whether it's in the gum, the tooth, the jaw. We haven't concluded that yet. The tooth is still under, you know, um, pathology and, you know, it, it, it's all, you know, one medical mystery after another. But what better example do you need that we shouldn't be ensuring our different organs differently when you can have one virus that can cause vascular damage in any organ that relies on blood flow? P.S. That's all of them, right? You know, so if we know we know that the virus disrupts the endothelial lining of the vasculature and so can create these micro blood clots anywhere and damage can occur anywhere in the body i mean that's just one of the modalities of damage but one we're probably the most familiar with at this point um in our understanding of covid but those sorts of realizations make you really reconsider our current healthcare state and, you know, how it obviously needs to change. And maybe this is the point that we can enter that renaissance into a better, um, a better system. We recently hosted Dr. Susan Rogers, who directs Physicians for National Health Reform. Um, when, and let me just extend to you best wishes for 
continued recovery and resilience uh, amid amid all the long haul effects for you and your family and friends. Um, when it comes to catalyzing and mobilizing a grassroots movement to support that political change, what strategies or tactics are you employing right now? Well, I think that one difference um, in this case has been, unlike other patient advocacy groups, um, we arose out of nowhere all at once. And so the world can't help but take notice. And so we haven't had to do the banging the fists on the table to make people pay attention to us. And, um, you know, that that has been a, bl- a blessing, you know, that other communities have not had. And, you know, one of my goals is that I hope at some point, Survivor Corps is an umbrella organization for other patient advocacy groups as well, because we all have so much to learn from one another. And what, you know, what medical advances we find from COVID will benefit, you know, the Lyme community folks and the fibromyalgia and some chronic fatigue, because there are so many overlapping um, issues. But, um, you know, I, 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 you know, I, that's, I, that's, that's where I think um, it's going. Is there advocacy? It sounds like you're still in the brainstorming stages as a coalition. Is there advocacy towards a particular legislative approach or, or state? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. We, we, we are, we have outlined our proposed federal response. Um, and where we would, you know, we'll, we'll be revealing that. We'll actually be hoping to publish that next week. Um, but where we, where we would like to see it housed in the government, the kind of funding it needs, why it's important, who needs to be in, in charge. You know, I, we have a lot of very definite ideas about how this needs to be institutionalized and, and registries started and maintained and um and research catalyzed um there the number of studies out of the you know one of the the crazy things about covid um and the our history with covid has been that it's the first time in our history where in our medical history where we have completely excised the general practitioner from the landscape, right? So we are using the emergency room as our first line of medical defense. So what happened was all, and not not only that, we were telling people the entire spring who were sick, don't even try to get tested. We were on a full lockdown. Don't try to get tested. You're more likely if you don't have it to pick it up trying to get tested than just staying home and writing it out. And so none of those people, including myself, ever had any medical care. Um, I call it the Tylenol and Gatorade variety of COVID. And that is the type that 90, you know, I don't know what the percentage is who go to the hospital, but I, it, I imagine it's under 10% of people who get COVID. And what happened was because those were the only people who the medical community had access to, 
all of the research has been done on hospitalized COVID patients who have a very different trajectory than non-hospitalized patients because patients who haven't been hospitalized have not only not been hospitalized, they've never seen a doctor. And there's no difference if I were to get COVID today versus when I got COVID last March in terms of what my early intervention therapeutic options would be. So I, there would be no incentive for me to even call my general practitioner if I got reinfected with COVID because I am not a candidate for monoclonal antibodies and there still remains no standard of care. So there's no one even to tell me that perhaps I should take an aspirin as an anticoagulant, you know, if it's not contraindicated. You know, the doctor isn't even there to give me, you know, nutritional advice on what I might do to help myself to prevent some of these long-term sequelae. And so what happened was where do people turn in the absence of this natural, you know, first step of the medical process going to your general practitioner, the gatekeeper to your medical health? Um, They went to the internet and they found each other on Survivor Corps. And as a result, we ended up we are now sitting on the largest set of data on non-hospitalized patients in the world. And the reason why that's so important is because non-hospitalized patients have a different trajectory than hospitalized patients because, you know, they are given no therapeutics up front. Um, You know, if you were diagnosed in Hong Kong, you would be immediately given a cocktail of an interferon, an antiviral, and an anticoagulant. Here we give, you know, Tylenol, Gatorade, thoughts and prayers. That sounds like the framework for insisting that we do differently. Uh, Absolutely. We have no choice but do differently, but we can do differently and do better. And now is the time to build up. Most of the coverage here in New York State, where we both are, there was nothing imaginative done here to demand that. Um, And I would surmise that in most other states, there were also not the kind of measures you're describing. I mean, I think you could say that for most of the Western world. I mean, so what, I, I, don't, I don't know a country in Europe that is doing differently. I mean, um, ironically, there are African countries who, who, are, who have been ahead of us since March. You know, they were able to get PCR tests back within three hours in Senegal and by April. You know, it's still taking us 10 days. I'm still searching for, for the kind of lobbying that you're going to do and understanding with more specificity what you want to legislate. Your priorities are either on a state level or federally to accomplish the two primary things you've mentioned, which is universal care for victims and long haulers specifically. And that might not just be healthcare, but financial benefits. That just absolutely, it's it's going to come in terms of unemployment benefits. It's going to come in the form of disability benefits. Um, I mean, we could be looking at the largest group of disabled young Americans in our country's history, including wartime. So in the second thing that you've mentioned here is redrawing the framework for medical care. Uh, While this is 
a pandemic and even as it may shift to being endemic. I would, I would add the, yes, I think that you're correct. What I would add in is also a demand for funding for research and a coordinating body for that research that is going, not going to take the usual NIH decade to return results. When it comes to an alternative to the, the 9-11 compensation victims fund or the, you know, we had this American rescue package that is in the penultimate stages of passage, the American rescue plan by president Biden. But I don't think that it addresses any one of the three things that you just described. You're right. And I think that it absolutely should. Um, I think that it absolutely should. It needs to anticipate the tremendous economic cost that is going to be borne, as I said, both by the country and the individuals, um, the medical costs. And there are ways to do things more efficiently medically than we are doing. Um, and we need to do it with the patient's benefit in mind, where the patients are true partners with the doctors and scientists, because it is only with their participation that we are going to get to the bottom of this, which means that we need an opt-in database, which is what's my original vision for Survivor Corps, to more expeditiously expediently connect patients and researchers. I mean, that's one of the things that Survivor Corps does now. How are you going to get it done when all these states are, are claiming they have to be bailed out by the federal government? And then the federal government itself, of course, the Republicans specifically are saying, we just spent $1.9 trillion on the American Rescue Plan. How are you going to accomplish it? Because there just doesn't seem to be the political will to do those really vital things that you're espousing. I think I, I don't think there's going to be a choice. I think that the numbers of people who are suffering at, are coming to light and so fast and furious. And there's it, it, you know, and anyone. I mean, this this does not discriminate. You can be young, old, male, female. Like, it does not matter. And so, celebrities are being affected. Um, newscasters are being affected. Politicians are being affected. Their friends are being affected. Um, it's something that's going to be harder and harder to deny as days go on. And I hope that once, you know, look, we, we really, the, this administration walked in at a severe disadvantage in terms of the logistics of the vaccine distribution. And, um, you know, that has, they've been drinking out of a fire hose. Um, with that, but we need to, we need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And we need to lay the groundwork now, um, for what's to come. Diana, I salute you for all of your advocacy on behalf, on behalf of patients and victims and their families. Uh, you're doing most important work and I encourage our listeners to visit you at survivorcore.com. Thank you so much for your story and your insight today, Diana. Thank you so much for having me on and please follow me on Twitter at Diana Barrett.